Book of 1 John. Thursday nights we'll be meeting this summer. So mark your calendar. We'll talk about it next week. Uh, Starting, I think, June 12th, we'll be meeting Thursday nights, something called summer school. Uh, You know, we've really been praying as a church about what it means to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. So this summer is going to be a time of equipping where we're going to uh, come together for a meal at 6 p.m., and then at 7, we'll worship together, and then we'll break up into classes. And we'll have classes having to do with theology, Bible, mission, and life. And those classes will last for four weeks, and then we'll rotate into a new bunch of classes, another four weeks, and then a new bunch of classes. So an important time of getting equipped as a church to be faithful to Jesus this summer. So Thursday nights, plan on being here from 6 for dinner until about uh, 8.30 or so, the end of classes, Okay. We'll have a flyer for you next week, another good one. Okay, 1 John chapter 2. We have some interesting verses before us today. You know, John is interesting. Have you noticed that John is kind of interesting? Like last week, he's like, I'm, I'm not telling you a new commandment. I'm just giving you an old commandment. And he makes the case, it's an old commandment. And the next verse, he's like, on the other hand, it's a new commandment. John is interesting. You, if you, as you read, you're not feeling that? That wasn't interesting to you? <laughs> It's interesting to me as I'm studying John, every once in a while, I'm like, what is he saying and why is he saying it? I know it's important. It's God's word, but I've I've been having some trouble getting a couple of these things. Today is kind of one of those passages. Verses 12 through 14, we'll read it and get into it. By the way, our Ventura campus will be joining us for this message. We should let them know how much we love them. Come on. First John chapter 2, starting in verse 12, New American Standard Bible says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, Because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And we believe that when we open your word and we open our hearts, you're faithful to speak to us. And God, we want to be spoken to. You're our Heavenly Father, you're our great Redeemer, you're our High Priest, you're a senior pastor. You're the great shepherd of our souls. You're our deliverer, our Lord, our master, and the lover of our souls. And you're faithful from generation to generation. And Lord, it just feels like an important time in our church and in our community. And we want to be faithful to pursuing you. We truly want to be followers of Jesus. And so we're thankful for how the book of 1 John is exhorting us in that. We ask that today as we look at these verses that you'd give us revelation in our own hearts for personal application and as we teach and preach clear doctrine for the glory of Jesus Christ that Holy Spirit Christ might loom larger in our hearts and minds we might be drawn into a deeper place of enjoying and obeying him we ask these things together in Jesus name amen amen 
Okay, so John addresses these three groups. You'll remember that he is writing to a group of churches that he's concerned with, connected with, perhaps planted those churches. Perhaps he's a sort of pastor over those churches or plays an apostolic role. But he's writing to these people in the churches. We remember why he's writing, to correct some misunderstandings about Jesus and in light of people's misunderstanding, some of their misbehavior and not being faithful to follow Jesus. He's writing to correct those things. And he says, now I'm writing to you little children and I'm writing to you fathers and I'm writing to you young men. When he says I'm writing to you little children, well, let me back up and say this. He's talking about phases or stages of spiritual growth here. Little children, young men, and fathers. He's not talking about whether or not He's not talking about paternal issues. When he says father, he doesn't mean, well, you have kids. When he says young man, it's not necessarily an age thing. When he says little children, it wasn't like Jesse was reading this to the children's ministry. He's talking about phases, stages of spiritual growth, okay? So when he says little children, he's probably just referring to all the believers. He's already addressed them as little children a few times. You'll remember back in verse one of chapter two, he said, little children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. So he's called them little children before. By this time, John is like in his 90s. He walked with Jesus. He's an old guy. When you're in your 90s, everyone's a little child to you. But he also has a pastoral love for them. He calls them beloved often and little children. You can just hear his shepherd's heart and his father's heart coming out. So He's probably referring to the whole church, but he may also, and commentators are divided on this, may be referring to those who are sort of spiritual infants, brand new little Jesus babies, just born again by the spirit of God, right? New believers, fresh converts. He might be writing to them as well. Doesn't matter. The application will be the same because all believers start as new believers. So what he's gonna say to them is pertinent to all of us. And then he turns to the fathers, Does it go chronologically? Kind of skips to the fathers now. When he says fathers, he's referring to those who are mature in the faith, as a New Living Translation says it. Those who are mature in the faith. Again, doesn't have to do with their paternal state. Doesn't have to do with age necessarily, though that may play a role, and we'll speak about that in a moment. But he's addressing those who are mature in faith. So all the believers in the church, or maybe new believers, and then fathers, those who are mature in the faith. And then he says young men. Again, he's not talking about age. He's talking about people who are young in the faith. They're not new believers, but they're not seasoned saints. They're somewhere in between. And I apologize that he uses only the masculine, but he's referring to males and females. And ancient culture did that, and even much of our culture does that. When we address human adults, we often just do it with masculine language, but he's referring to men and women in the church who may be new converts or young believers or mature in their faith. He addresses them twice. He kind of repeats himself. Nuances a little bit here and there, but John loves to repeat himself. That's the way that he emphasizes things. All good preachers repeat themselves. All good preachers repeat themselves. (laughs) Now, why is John saying these things? We'll get to the content of what he's saying in a moment, just giving you an overview of to whom he is speaking. Why is he saying these things? Well, he's got a pastoral concern here. He's got a fatherly concern. He wants to encourage those who are listening to them and reassure them. 
for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're in a difficult time in their church. You'll remember there are people in the church who stopped believing in the incarnation. Therefore, they didn't believe in the atonement. Therefore, they had a low view of sin. They didn't take sin that seriously. They kind of minimized it. And so that created a rift in the church and a whole bunch of people left the church and they were saying, look, you guys got the wrong view of Jesus believing in the incarnation and atonement, worried about sinning. We don't believe in that stuff. We're taken off and we're free to worship Jesus in a different way. And that was difficult for them. So lots of deep relationships in the church and it always hurts when somebody leaves. We understand that and they understood that. So he's wanting to encourage them now. But perhaps he's worried about what they're thinking in their minds as John has been addressing the opponents, the ones that were dismissing the incarnation and atonement and sin. Perhaps he's worried about how his audience, those who have been faithful to true doctrine and remained in the church, are thinking about themselves in their own standing before Christ as he's been addressing the opponents. Because he's been saying things like this, verse four of chapter two. The one who says, I've come to know him. I know Jesus. And does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. And he says stuff like this, verse 9 of chapter 2. The one who says he is in the light. Remember, Jesus is in the light. So the one who is walking with Jesus and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. we, We study those things carefully, but they, as careful as we were, they made me nervous. Did they make you nervous at all? Even I think this is John's pastoral concern. He's saying, listen, if you're saying you follow Jesus, but you don't obey his commandments, you're a liar. Gosh, just yesterday I did some things that were against the commandments of God. And if you say you're walking in the light, but you hate your brother, you're in darkness. You're a liar. Remember, hate isn't that malicious, evil intent, malice. It's the absence of self-sacrificial, other-oriented love in the context. And I think about people I dismissed this week and didn't love in the love that Christ is calling us to, so hated them in the sense of this text. And I'm like, gosh, am, am I in darkness? Perhaps he's worried about some of those concerns. And those things should check us a little bit. And we did a careful exegesis. We understand that we're still going to sin We can faithfully follow Jesus and still sin. That's why he said, if we say we have no sin, we're kidding ourselves. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. So we understand these things, but they ought to check us a little bit. We ought to be causing, it ought to be causing us to ask, is my life congruent with the teachings of scripture? Am I living in a way that's commensurate with, consistent with, faithful to scripture? Am I looking to dive as deep as I can into following Jesus and walking obedience? Or am I looking to get away with as much as I can and still be a Christian? Although he's addressing heretics here, those of us that are faithful in doctrine ought to be challenged to remain faithful in behavior when we look at those things. But John wants to assure them and comfort them. He doesn't want his readers to think that he doubts their faith He's been dealing with the opponents. He wants to reassure them that he's not been trying to call them to perfection. Rather, he's merely trying to show them that wrong beliefs about Jesus cause us to lapse into wrong behavior. False concepts of Christ cause us to be unfaithful as it pertains to following Christ. That's why it's important. Dear brothers and sisters whom I love, 
to study the Bible, to study the word of God, to give yourselves to doctrine, to give yourselves to theology. Because in some wonderful way, right beliefs begin to form right behavior. And wrong beliefs will always lead toward wrong behavior. It's important as Christians that we understand what the Bible teaches. Every one of us must dive into those things. It's important for our life following God. So he's wanting to comfort them, reassure them in their standing before Christ and just make sure they're all right. So here's what he says to comfort them. What does he say to comfort them and perhaps us? Again, three groups addressed here. Little children, all believers, perhaps new believers. It'll be the same. He says this, your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake and you know the father. That's what he says when he addresses them. And then for fathers, mature in the faith, he says, you know Jesus who has existed from the beginning. And then for young men, young in the faith, he says, you have overcome the evil one. You won your battle with the devil. You are strong and the word of God abides in you. So let's kind of break down what he says to each one of these. And let's remember, he's not talking about physical age, but stages of spiritual development. But let me say this. That doesn't mean that in our spiritual development, age doesn't play a role. Age does play a role. Let me say something very important. Christians don't grow day by day. Christians grow word by word, right? You could be a Christian for decades. And if you don't give yourself to scripture and studying scripture and following Christ by following his commands, then you're not going to ever reach a degree of spiritual maturity. You might be an old man or an old woman, but a spiritual infant or even worse, a spiritual adolescent, a spiritual teenager or preteen. Okay, so the main issue is not the passing of time. The main issue in our spiritual growth is growing by the word of God and following Jesus. But that's not the only way that Christians grow. Christians don't only grow word by word. Christians grow trial by trial. Christians grow trial by trial. Because God has just made the world to work that way, God ordains trials in the lives of Christians. He just does. We like the miracles. Miracles are easy for God. He's more concerned about how we deal with the trials. The disciples liked the feeding of the 5,000. They were there with Jesus, and Jesus was like, hey, let's give them something to eat. And they're like, well, we only got you know, some fish and a little bit of bread. And Jesus goes, brings it here. Put that, put that, put that, put that. Takes a little bit, multiplies. It feeds 5,000 men, plus there are women and children. So perhaps 20,000 people in total. He feeds. And the disciples are like, okay, that's awesome. And they got to be involved in it. Like he broke the bread and then he handed it to the disciples and then they got to hand it to the people and they're like, miracle fish, serving it, miracle bread, serving it. And they got to participate in it. And then after that, after the people are fed, Jesus says, okay, boys, get in the boat and go to the other side. He commanded them. The Greek word is anikazo. It's a military command type of phrase. I command you to get in the boat and go to the other side. Cool, Jesus, you're going to come. Let's go feed some more people, cast out some demons, do some stuff. Jesus says, no, you boys go alone. And then a storm comes. 
Coinkydink? I think not. I think that was a Jesus storm, a God-ordained storm, because life is not only the miraculous. Life is also the painful. And it's not as though God is only in the miracles. God is also in the pain. God is present in the trials. And the God who redeems our life redeems our trials. He redeems our difficulties. And he uses them for our good. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, it was good for me that I was afflicted because before I was afflicted, I went astray. Martin Luther said, the best library in my book, best library in my book, the best book in my library is affliction. It wasn't an actual book. He's saying, I have learned more through suffering than all the books that I have in my library. Now in life, it generally just takes time to suffer a lot. Some suffer sooner, some suffer lately. So he's not talking about physical age, he's talking about spiritual age. And spiritual age is not dependent upon physical age, but nor is it separate from, because as we live longer, we suffer more. That's just how this life is. And God uses that. The word and the spirit work in conjunction with life in this fallen world. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. So that was just a little rabbit trail. Now, he's talking to little children. There are two kinds of spiritual infants pictured in the New Testament, okay? Two kinds of spiritual infants pictured in the New Testament. The first one is is the one that he's probably referring to here. Those are just spiritual infants by birth. They've just been born again, repented of their sins, put their faith in Jesus. They've been born again. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says this to them. Like newborn babies, you must crave spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. So the New Testament talks about people who've just been born again as spiritual babies, right? There's that metaphor, born again. And what do spiritual babies do? I have a new baby, little Theodora Sunshine, three months old. What do little babies do? A few things, but mostly eat, right? At first they sleep like 20 hours a day. Those are the glory days. You just had this baby and just sleeps for like 20 hours. You're like, this is so easy. We should add so many more of these things. And then at about six weeks, they turn a little corner and then they go into the fussy stage. And you're like, oh my goodness, why did we ever have any of these things? But once they stop sleeping for 20 hours, then they move into eating for about 20 hours, right? They eat and they eat and they eat and they eat and they grow. And you go in for checkups and they're like, oh my gosh, your baby has gained 12 pounds in four days. Good job, mom. And mom's like, yeah just sucking the life out of mom. This is getting too graphic. (laughs) But what babies do is they eat and they eat and so they grow. This is what new Christians are supposed to do. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk. Spiritual milk in the word of God is always talking about the word of God so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. So the first kind of spiritual infant spoken of in the New Testament 
is the one who's just been born again, a new convert, a new believer. And they will grow with proper nourishment on the word of God, fellowship and worship. They will grow. He says to them, your sins are forgiven. That's the first experience of every Christian. Our sins being forgiven. That glorious moment where we first realize and perhaps even feel that though our sins were as scarlet, they've been washed white as snow. Though we were filthy before God, we've been washed, cleansed, purified, sanctified, justified. That is the first experience of every believer is that release of the burden of guilt when our sins are washed away by what Christ did upon the cross. And he's wanting to encourage them. Listen, young Christians in that church, perhaps all you believers, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't want them to deny culpability as the opponents were doing, but he doesn't want them to get weighed down with their present struggles. He reminds them of the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple things in play here. We need to begin to discern the difference between forensic forgiveness and filial forgiveness. Who, what, what, what? Forensic forgiveness, isn't this, isn't, don't we have a slide for this? No, we don't. My bad. Can we make that for the next service, a slide? We need to discern because we need to see those words, right? They're such crazy words. Forensic forgiveness and filial forgiveness. Forensic having to do with like law and a court of law, right? And the justice system. Filial having to do with children relating to a father. Filial forgiveness and forensic forgiveness. When we as Christians sin... Anybody here who's a Christian that sins, raise your hand. The rest of you are sinning now. (laughs) When we sin as a Christian, what happens is there's, there's a breaking of that intimate fellowship with Christ, right? Because when we're obeying, we're following him. And when we're obeying, we're loving him and we're staying near to him. Jesus said, you, you want to follow me? Pick up your cross, deny yourself. You want to love me? If you love me, you obey my commandments. So there's this continual drawing near of the Christian to Christ in and through obedience. When we willfully disobey, there is some sort of breaking of fellowship. But we're still in the family. It's not that when we disobey, we lose our salvation, right? We we, we understand that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We don't lose our sonship or our daughtership, but we compromise close fellowship when we're walking in disobedience as Christians. But when we practice 1 John 1, 9, again, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. When we practice that as children, The forgiveness that we receive is a filial sort of forgiveness. It reconciles intimacy between us as his sons and daughters and him as our heavenly father. It's a family sort of forgiveness. We were never kicked out of the family, but there was this little bit of discord through our disobedience. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we're brought back into intimacy. And aren't you glad to know that our heavenly father isn't into holding grudges? Come on. Listen, you know how we are? We hold grudges. I'm horrible with this. 
I've had a lot of people call me out on this in my life, I'm my, especially my wife all the time. I am just a grudge holder, and it's sin. It's so wrong. It's sin. Part of it is just how I am emotionally. It just takes me time to get over stuff. But even the way that I deal with that is, is downright sinful. And so, you know, people could do something against me and they say, I'm sorry. And I say, oh, I forgive you. But I, I, I hold them at arm's length still for a while. It's sinful. I'm not forgiving as I've been forgiven. But I'm so thankful to know and it encourages me and it changes me to know that our heavenly father is not like that. That when we confess our sins, he brings us right back into that place of deep fellowship for which we were saved. That's filial forgiveness. Forensic forgiveness is that once and for all forgiveness of sins that we have as believers. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we are in that instant justified because of the blood of Christ declared innocent, not guilty, and holy and righteous according to our standing in Christ. That always remains forensic forgiveness and filial forgiveness. So perhaps, perhaps both are in mind with John as he writes to these little children in the church, spiritual infants, new believers, perhaps all the Christians. He says, listen, I know I've been giving you some hard words. I know there's been lots of ups and downs. I know your church experience has been difficult, but let's pause for a moment and rejoice. Your sins are forgiven. In a forensic sense, you have once and for all been declared righteous in the sight of God. So even though time, yeah, come on, if you're going to do it, do it. So even though times are hard, let's just pause. That's what he's doing in this text. He's pausing. Let's just pause and rejoice in our forgiveness. And when you start to be disappointed in the way that you're blowing and you know you're walking into disobedience, let's also rejoice in filial forgiveness. That God doesn't hold us at arm's length when we confess our sins. He doesn't hold a grudge against us. He brings us near. And to drive that home for them, he says there in verse 12, your sins are forgiven for his namesake. For his namesake. Now, what does that mean? He's really wanting to encourage them with that phrase. Your sins are forgiven for his namesake. There's a couple ways that we think about it. When I first hear it, I think, oh, that means that The forgiveness of our sins has to do with his glory and not our glory, his purposes and not our purposes. And that's true. But let's be faithful to the concept of name within scripture. Name in scripture always is having to do with the essence or the quality or the character of a person. That's why we sing songs, we praise your holy name. Lord, I lift your name on high, right? It's not the name. In ancient culture, name was representative of the person. So when he says your sins have been forgiven for his namesake, he's saying your sins have been forgiven according to who Christ is and what he's done for you. So when life is difficult, don't get too stuck on who you are and what you have failed to do for God. Rather, you've been forgiven for his namesake according to who he is and what he has done for you. Your slate is clean and will always remain clean because Jesus, the righteous, died in your place. Your salvation, our salvation is according to his name, who he is, and not our name and who we are. What he's done, not what we've done or failed to do. Isn't that good news? 
He wants us to be comforted by that. We see this imagery in the Psalm. Psalm 23, verse 3 says, He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Certainly for his glory, that may connote. But what it really denotes is according to his quality and character, who he is. Because it starts out by saying, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Right? Because the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The sovereign, good, wonderful God of the universe is my shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness according to who he is and what he can do. That's good life. Psalm 90 says this, or Psalm something, I can't remember, 79. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, there's that, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your namesake. So it has to do with his glory and his quality and his character. He wants to encourage the church and perhaps the new believers by saying, your sins are forgiven in a forensic sense, in a filial sense, according to who Jesus is. And that's good news. And then he says to them in verse 13 in the New American Standard, though it's in verse 14 of the New Living Translation, he says, and you know the Father. Knowing the Father is a function of being born again. When we are born again, we are born again into the family of God. And God becomes our Father. We were once orphans. We were once not a people. But through Christ, we have been made a people, the people of God for his own possession. And God becomes our father. And he wants them to remember that. He wants them to rejoice in that. He wants to bring security to their lives through that. That's a function of salvation. You know, the world likes to think, well, we're all children of God. The Bible says that's not the case. The Bible says we're all children of wrath. But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become children of God. John 1.12 says this. But to all who believed Jesus and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So now we're supposed to relate to the one who spoke all things into existence as little kids relate to their fathers. And listen, I don't care who your father was. He's nothing like your heavenly father. I had a good father. He's sitting in the back row. I love my father. He's been a good father to me, but he's nothing like my heavenly father. How good your father was or how poor your father was how present he was or how absent he was, how nurturing he was or how abusive he was. He's nothing like your heavenly father. When you are born again, you get a new father who is always righteous, always present, always caring, all wise, all knowing. Your heavenly father. Romans 8 and Galatians 4 say this, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Okay, when we get born again, we're not slaves to God, afraid of him. Instead, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. Abba is Aramaic for daddy. We're supposed to relate to God as daddy. There are times where we revere him and call him Holy Father. But there should also be times where we snuggle him call him daddy 
And what God intends is that that's redemptive and restorative and healing in your life. In places where your father was absent, your heavenly father is present. In places where your earthly father was abusive, your heavenly father is nurturing. In places where you are wounded by the words of your father, your heavenly father speaks to you and says, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are children of God. And then Galatians 4 says this. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. So he just wants to remind them, look guys, I know that life is tough. I know the church has been strange, but your sins are forgiven according to who Jesus is. And you have a father in heaven who loves you madly and his spirit is in you, confirming and affirming and drawing you into loving relationship with your father. Now, that's what he has to say to the first kind of spiritual infant mentioned in the New Testament. Does this feel like it might be a long sermon? It very well may be. But there is a second kind of spiritual infant mentioned in the New Testament that he doesn't have in view here, but I want to mention. The second kind of spiritual infant or little child is not an infant by birth, not just born again, not a new convert. They are an infant by behavior. This is also spoken of in the New Testament. We're speaking here of carnal Christians. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia and said, walk by the spirit and you won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are all these horrific things, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Walk in the spirit and you won't carry out the deeds of the flesh, but oftentimes... Sometimes for some Christians, their whole life, it seems, they refuse to walk in the spirit and rather they're ruled by the flesh, even though Romans 6 tells us that our flesh was crucified to the cross, that we might have new life, that the power of sin has been broken in our lives. But some Christians never quite get there and they just live most of their life in the flesh rather than walking in the spirit. And scripture calls them spiritual babies. Paul writing in the church in Corinth, chapter three, verse one They had all sorts of messes going on in their church. And he says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. I couldn't deal with you as though you were mature, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. Infants in Christ. People who have been believers for some time, but they're stunted in their spiritual growth. And you know, all this age language, this metaphorical sort of physical language that we're putting on trying to understand spiritual growth. But if we want to press the metaphor, can you imagine if you went to the maternity ward and there's a 42-year-old man in the maternity ward being nursed by a nurse? Not nurse, that's gross. Bottle-fed by a nurse. Right, it's a, it's a ridiculous picture. Someone who never left the maternity ward. They never stopped wearing Clothes that babies wear. They never stop being an infant. It's a ridiculous picture. It's not given to us in the Bible because it's too stupid. And yet, some people are called spiritual infants, not by birth, but by behavior. They're stunted in their spiritual growth. And and the call here is a call to repentance. And you're living for yourself. You're living according to the flesh. It's evident in your life. 
You say you follow Jesus, but there's no evidence whatsoever. And you may very well be born again. You're just a spiritual baby and have been for too long. So it's an issue of repentance, saying, okay, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. Jesus, I want to live for you. You're the captain of the boat. You're in charge. I want to begin to live a life of obedience. But a lot of people get stuck in that place. Have you ever noticed how kids and babies, the very young, are ruled by emotions rather than understanding? Right? Little kids, you see that. Ever Ever seen a kid just throw a tantrum in a grocery store? Right, because they didn't get the piece of candy that they asked for their mom, and they're on their backs, just ah! screaming their heads off. Like real, like it looks like it's a serious, serious problem. They're going nuts, but it was just a piece of candy. They're ruled by their emotions. I think of my three-month-year-old daughter, Fiodora, just a little ball of emotions. Right, and like a switch, it goes on and off. One minute she's smiling and cooing, and then she's crying. The young are easily excited. They're easily frightened, frustrated, or distracted. And some believers are like that. The wind and the waves come. The worries of the world come. The deceitfulness of riches. The temptations that confront our passions. Positions that we desire. And we're just ruled by our emotions. I I gotta have it. I can't possibly deny myself. I'm so angry. I'm so bitter. I want that. That's going to make me happy. Brothers and sisters, we have not been saved so that we can be ruled by the emotions of our sinful nature. We have been saved to a new reality that we might be ruled by the Spirit of God in our deepest places, that our emotions and our thoughts Our behavior and our actions can be formed by something altogether more wonderful than our flesh. So some of us just need to grow up and we need to grow into young men, young in the faith, as it says in the New Living Translation. This is the next group that he addresses. He says to them in verse 13, you have overcome the evil one. So to them in verse 14, you are strong. Again, in verse 14, he says to them, the word of God abides in you. So these are not spiritual infants, but they're not yet spiritually super mature. They're not fathers. They're growing. And they are busily involved in the battle of Christian living. Because a Christian life is not only enjoying forgiveness and fellowship with God, God, but it is also fighting the enemy. That's a part of Christian life. And the forgiveness of past sins is to be followed by the continual deliverance from the present power of sin. The process of sanctification. And this is a battle. Has to do with the flesh, has to do with the enemy. Look at chapter 3, verses 7 through 8 of 1 John. He'll bring this up a few more times in the book. He says, little children, 1 John 3, 7, Let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Christ, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. But the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
You know, it's an interesting thing, the Christian life, which is a life of battle. Can I say it? If you've never heard it, the Christian life is a life of battle. It's a strange thing because the battle's already been won, right? Jesus won the battle already on the cross. But we're living in this in-between place kind of where the kingdom has already come, the king has already come, but the kingdom is not yet. Already here, but not yet. It is coming in its fullness. At the cross, the enemy was defeated. Jesus died and rose again. When Jesus comes again, the enemy will be fully vanquished, no longer present, gone from our realm forever. But in between, we're dealing with the last shots of a fallen foe. I was talking with this with Dr. Neil Medes, who is a local eye doctor and was playing bass in our worship band today and has been at the church for about nine years, got saved here. And we were talking about the spiritual battle. And he said, it's such a, a hard concept to wrap your mind around that the battle's already been won and yet we're called to daily battle. Like, w- what does that look like? You know, and he had a great sort of way of thinking about great analogy. He said, you know what it is? The battle's already won. The troops are going where they're supposed to go, but we need to limit and minimize casualties on the way. I like that. Because scripture does say sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. Scripture does say in 1 Peter 5, 8, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And there may be some casualties along the way, brothers and sisters that fall hard to sin. Ultimately, there's going to be victory. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin, but we need to daily battle to walk in victory over the power of sin, which has been broken. So we can actually do that. That's why, as we learned in Ephesians, we have this exhortation. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And so he's reminding the young men the spiritually almost mature, growing, the spiritually growing, we should say, in the church, you've won your battle with the enemy. The verb is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means it's a past action that has a present result. The victory is yours through Jesus, but the present result is that we are to walk in that victory. It's interesting that he addresses them as being young. It's a metaphor. It's supposed to bring something to mind. And spiritual life and vitality and growth is not fully separated from the way that we grow physically. There's some parallels here. That's why he's using that metaphor. Think about what youthfulness is like. There's energy. There's excitement. The young are often idealistic. There's inexperience. There's passion, there's zeal, there's romance, and there's conflict. There's pride. And there's strength. Right? There's strength. That is perhaps one of the things that characterizes young people is they have a strength 
that we don't always have when we get old. I think about my father, who is now 70, but he looks like he's 50. That was a little bone for you, pops. <laughs> you know, when I was growing up, my dad was the strongest man in the world. When we were out on the boat fishing and the anchor was stuck, my dad could always pull it. You know what I mean? He was always the strongest man in the world. Now he's 70 and I'm 42. Now I'm the strongest man in the world. (laughs) So when we're out on the boat and the anchor is stuck, it's not even a question anymore. I'm not like, Dad, I know you're 70, but get up on the bow and pull the anchor. No, the anchor needs to be pulled off the bottom and it's stuck in the rocks. I am going. No, just kidding. (laughs) Totally kidding. I'm a little loose today, huh? <laughs> yes. My point is, when it comes to physicality, the young, though they're characterized by all sorts of things, they're characterized by strength. And there is a zeal. There is a strength in the maturing Christian. And that's what he encourages them in. He says, look, there's hard times in life and there's hard times in the church now, but you have overcome. You have won your battle with the enemy and you are strong in the Lord. So be strong, act strong, stand firm. Don't give up, don't give in. He gives a hint as to why they're strong. He says in verse 14, the word of God abides in you. Man, that is where the Christian strength comes from. The word of God abiding us, obeying. The psalmist asked the question many years ago. He asked the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? He's strong. He's a young man or a young woman, but can he or she be pure? How can that happen? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. What a good prayer. I wish I had prayed that more in my life. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. To a large degree, the source of the strength of these maturing Christians is they've treasured the word of God in their hearts. They're abiding in the word. The psalmist also said this in Psalm 1, how blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. It's not hanging out with rebels. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He loves the word of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The word of God abides in him. So then there is this tremendous strength that comes from his or her life. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season even though there's going to be droughts and there's going to be flood and there's going to be fire and there's going to be axes that come chopping at us, when the word of God is treasured in our hearts and meditated upon and abiding in us, we're like a firmly planted tree by a stream of water. We're going to yield fruit at the time that God has ordained. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Galatians and said, don't grow weary in doing good. In due time, you'll reap what you sow. And its leaf does not wither. In the dry times and the hard times, we don't wither up and fall and blow away because we're abiding in the word of God. And whatever he does, he prospers. New Testament exhortation is Paul writing to the church in Colossae and saying in 3.16, 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So many things that want to dwell in our hearts from the TV shows that we watch, from the magazines that we read, from the websites that we frequent, to the people that we talk with, to the things that we want, to the things that we can't have, to the words that wounded us. There's so many things that want to dwell in our heart, but look at the wonderful hope for the Christian. Let the word of Jesus richly dwell within you. That's how I want to live. That's how he's saying these young maturing Christians in that church were living. They were strong and they were overcoming because the word of God abided in them. And then he says to the fathers who are mature in the faith. He only says one thing and he repeats it. He says, you know him who has existed from the beginning. Doesn't seem like he's saying too much to them because he already said to the new converts, you know the father. And that's a function of being saved is that we now know God. But what is he saying here? I believe that he's saying to these mature Christians that they have a deeper knowledge of God and a deeper intimacy that only comes with time. Only comes with time. The longer we know someone, the more possibility there is for intimate relationship, right? That's why when people come to me and they're like, Pastor Britt, we want you to marry us. I'm like, how long have you been together? Two weeks and we're so in love. I say, go away. (laughs) You don't know anything. It takes time to get to know people. One of the really neat things about this life and eternity is God is inexhaustible. We will be discovering about and enjoying and diving into the wonders of God forever. But those who are mature have this intimacy that comes oftentimes with time, but not just time, because time is not the main function of spiritual growth. It comes with time and trials. Remember, the word of God is already abiding in them. They went through the maturing phase. They're mature now. Maturity comes with the word of God and with time, but not just time in the word, time and trials. Trials and failure. Failure and success. Success and pain. Pain and joy. Joy in seeing that through it all, the ebbs and the flows, the ups and the downs, the mountains and the valleys, the joys and the heartaches of life, joy in knowing and in experiencing God's steadfast love through it all. That's maturity. It's the idea of epinosis. The Greek word for to know is gnosis. Epinosis is a deeper word. Epi is a prefix that means upon. It's like knowledge upon knowledge, but it's not head knowledge, right? When you get born again, you, 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 you knew something, but, but when you're mature, you know someone. It's not head knowledge. It's clear, exact, experiential, participatory knowledge. The person who is mature in Christ is a person who has experienced Christ, participated in the life of Christ, dove into through the ups and downs, the failures and the successes, the trials and the joys, the pain, dove into the person of Christ. 
And the reason that John here says, you know the one who existed from the beginning is to get at the idea of your soul is settled in the sovereign faithfulness of God. Everything's not a battle to you anymore. You're not young. It's not all new and exciting anymore. You're not necessarily strong. But you're settled in that you have seen God be faithful over and over and over again. John Stott says, he said, the immutable eternal God who does not change with the advancing years but who is forever the same. Time hurries on, but in all generations they find a refuge in him who is from everlasting to everlasting. They are consciously living in light of eternity. The mature have a deep, peaceful, trusting communion with God. They say with the psalmist in Psalm 90, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born and you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In other words, the mature say this, life has its ups and downs, little children. There are many battles to fight, young men, but you'll find one day that God is faithful through them all. He always has been, and he always will be. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. So be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord, that we would receive encouragement in these words. And you know where we're at in our spiritual development, and we want to be faithful with wherever we're at. So Holy Spirit, please come minister to us now. As we've been talking about, it just feels like an important, interesting, and somewhat daunting season in our church. So come and minister to us. Come and meet us, Holy Spirit, in the deep places of our hearts. Thank you, God, that you are our Father who daily bears our burdens. Thank you, God, that you are the one who daily carries us in your arms. Come minister to us now as we just get before you and get into your presence, seeking to honor and enjoy you.